Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, Anna sits down with some of the participants of ETHCC to talk about governance and the ETH magicians. Before we start, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits is, at the moment, looking for companies writing Ethereum smart contracts that want their security help. They've got a brand new continuous assurance system, and they want to test it out on a few people. So if you'd like security help from their team, integrated into every pull request during your development cycle, fill out the sign-up form on crytic.io. That's C-R-Y-T-I-C dot I-O. We'll share this link in the show notes. Thank you again, Trail of Bits. Last week, I popped in to ETHCC for one day to find out what was on people's minds. ETHCC is a tech-focused community conference that, at least for the last two years, has happened at the beginning of March in Paris. It's centered around the Ethereum community, the tech, the people, and ECC has become one of those events where many of the participants from all over the world come together to make new connections, to learn a ton, to air their grievances, and ideally to push the space forward. I had six conversations while I was there that I'll share in the next hour. Just for your information, these were very spontaneous. There was little to no prep that went into the questions, and as you will hear from the various background noises, we weren't always in the perfect place to do such a recording. Still, I think that there's some value in what we discussed. Our conversations range from chatting about ETH magicians, which had just happened a few days before, the code of conduct that's recently been proposed, the idea of adding formalization around decision-making, how decision-making works, how organizers and research towards decision-making can be funded, DAOs, cat herders, and so much more. I hope that these interviews help to showcase a range of perspectives on how decision-making can happen in the decentralized space. I don't think any of the participants would claim to have all the answers, but you can see that each of them cares deeply about the Ethereum community, their respective communities, and the blockchain community as a whole. So here are the conversations at ETHCC. Who are you and what are you doing? Hi, my name is Boris Mann. I've been helping out with the Ethereum Magician since uh, the Berlin event in the middle of 2018. Uh, and uh, I run a company called the Special Projects and Decentralized Engineering Company. Um, my co-founder, Brooke, and I are mainly working on low-level EVM infrastructure and trying to improve the Ethereum ecosystem. So you are pretty involved with the magicians. Do you see the magicians as a governing body, a governance sort of entity, or do you think of it as more of a community entity? So the, the G word is quickly becoming one that can be defined in a number of different ways. Um, 
as part of entering the community um, um, more fully, I've had to ask a lot of questions and, and ask about history and, and figure out how things happen. Um, the Ethereum Magicians are a non-organization, so no one speaks for them directly, and you kind of have to, it's kind of a bit of a, like, what is the elephant and the blind man kind of thing. Um, it was created as a reaction to uh, decisions starting to be made behind closed doors. So one of the missions, as I see it, is uh, calls for uh, transparency uh, and openness. And part of that is by adding uh, a default place where long-form discussions can happen um, and support and collaboration for process, specifically around the Ethereum improvement proposal process, uh, which is the only governance tool that the network currently has, which is adjacent to the core dev governance process. And what we're seeing uh, is the technical only nature of Ethereum magicians um, basically immediately grew to ha uh, have a need for stakeholders who found the dev only processes to be inaccessible. Uh, so I guess that's my long way of saying it's complicated. <laughs> Would you say that the magicians play a part in real decision making? Or is this more about like creating a body of research? Again, saying the magicians, um, Everyone participates as individuals. Um, it has some infrastructure and resources like the forums and other things that we grow over time. Um, so the governance process is the e process. Uh, so the magicians themselves is, is not a thing. So you don't, like in this case, it's not like a decision or some sort of consensus in the room at magicians would then be the consensus that would be like a, around a decision that would then be implemented by core devs that there's a different process for that absolutely i think one of the things was that uh that eth magicians as a format was a way to provide uh social scalability to the core dev process in different ways where the concept of working groups or rings could mean that uh uh, stakeholders who are interested in particular topics, uh, areas of the technology or otherwise could gather together and then um, questions which affected those particular areas of the of the ecosystem would have a ready-made body of experts rather than core devs needing to be experts at everything. I think it's getting there, so it's doing part of those things. What hasn't happened and what outlined earlier is that uh, there are essentially missing core dev processes and the core devs have... Um, resisted uh, additional forms of uh, governance. It's maybe not only governance, it's like formalization of governance or something. And that's actually what I want to ask next, is like, what is your opinion on that? Is, are you, what I've seen a lot of is there's groups that really reject any sort of formalism and there's others that are calling for it. Where do you see yourself? I feel like I've been very transparent about this on Twitter when sort of my mind is changed. Uh, you know, reading Vlad Zamfir's Blockchain Governance 101, um, where he kind of laid out the different areas of, of capture, um, I, 
uh, was and am convinced that, that Ethereum is currently at a point of uh, developer capture. It's just a thing. It's not necessarily good or bad. Um, what I am trying to do now is at least hold that process accountable and be more organized. So less about formalized, but organization. So I'm in the midst of uh, doing some of the work that AFRI started in putting dates to hard fork planning. So I'm assisting with that from the project management and communications perspective. I'm not asking for permission. I'm just doing it because it needs to get done because of my history in how open source projects get run. So that's an interesting point you just made. So you just, you're jumping in. And I think maybe where it becomes a bit of a challenge is when you also talk about compensation or like, it's awesome that many people have the time to jump in and add, but some people are paid by the Ethereum foundation. Some people are paid by other organizations. What do you, what's your take on that? Uh, my take on it is that it is not sustainable long-term. Uh, I, uh, Brooke and I have a three-month runway, um, and then we need to close up shop and get jobs. Uh, we have a number of things uh, in the pipeline, uh, so you know, don't cry for us just yet. Uh, but I do have to um, balance the work that I invest in the community uh, with compensation in different forms. Uh, if you're working on this shared infrastructure, um, then there's a number of different sort of business models and, and people that can support you in different ways. I think the question is, um, what is the role of the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum ecosystem? Um, and the Ethereum Foundation is not in charge, and yet by holding large purse springs and by default funding things, those things happen. Not funding other things is, in fact, making a decision in many cases. Um, and so how do we activate the wider community um, to pull funds together for things that their stakeholders care about? And with this shared network, are there ways... like? come on, we literally have programmable money. We should be able to figure out some interesting things that we can do. But that's the thing that is critical before we get people going to burnout or simply saying that um, they've been undercompensated for too long. That's another story of, of uh, I have heard that there's certain people that are being uh, paid at a level that is really um, quite a bit lower than the, the industry standard. Do you think, is there any other kind of challenges or points that you think make governing or make decision-making complicated? We have to think about multiple different layers here. Uh, the running Ethereum network is, in fact, a different thing that the, than the open-source software that powers it. The open-source software that powers it should pretty much be run in the same way that open source projects have been run for a long time. There's actually a, a phrase for it, open source is the license, and the, the way that software gets built is commons-based peer production. Um, and we can, we, can, we can use that to do things other than software as well, and that's part of what magicians do. So um, what is the responsibility of actively including other stakeholders? versus saying, if you can band together and hire some technical t talent, then you can participate. 
Um, and that's the thing that I'm struggling with. Do I merely put out the welcome mat uh, and maybe say, you know, here's some tips, which I've been doing already. Um, or is it a responsibility of those of us who participate in the Ethereum ecosystem to do active outreach to give voice to stakeholders? And I don't know. From Rick Dudley's talk yesterday morning, I've become convinced that there is definitely a missing portion of governance and something that looks like, I'll say an implementation, like coin votes, uh, may in fact be a tool that we need to deploy because we simply can't have the core devs just throw up their hands and say, this is politically, we, we simply won't decide because with the cadence of hard forks, not deciding actually decides. So really interesting stuff in that area. Uh, I want to uh, mention uh, Tenagraph. Uh, it got started uh, as part of the signaling, um, and its goal is to gather signals with a variety, variety of different methods on a per-eap basis. And that's very interesting because it layers on top of what our existing uh, technical governance model is. Yeah, I actually... Full disclosure here, I was part of the corner beginning of Tenograph as well <laughs> and still act as an advisor on that project. Um, I think that is at least an attempt to try to put some of these into a place where people can at least see them and then make judgments on whether or not they're valuable. Well, listen, I want to say thank you so much for this interview. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of ECC. Do you have anything you want to say to the audience? You know what? We've built something pretty incredible. Uh, I'm really excited about where we're going. Um, I'm putting time and effort in, and uh, I want to see all of us do the same and continue the incredible spirit this community has. Do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, hi, I'm Maria Paula, and I work for Golem and do a couple of initiatives in the community as ETH magicians, um, the Department of Decentralization, and yeah, a couple of more. So, I wear a lot of hats. Because we're here, we're talking about sort of decision-making and governance. Why don't, you, why don't we start with you describing how you see decisions being taken in the space? Well... It's a little bit frustrating for me the, to learn that decisions are done uh, mostly by time pressure because uh, it gets to a point in the in the like what I call it endless phil philosophical discussion that everyone is having, where time pressure plays a part and they're like, okay, we'll choose this this particular stream or this particular one and it gets a little bit frustrating in that sense because I believe that you know we should have some kind of like a structured way to make decisions and I don't see it happening at the same time obviously there's these proponents of uh, no decisions at all but you know the real world has decisions the real world has politics so we are expecting to replicate the real world and make it better. Well, you know, this is not working out if we can make decisions. So <laughs> that's my reasoning. So, yeah, you're just talking about how there's this kind of, there's different groups with different ideas on what governance should look like and especially how formal that should be. Where do you stand on that? How formal do you think you'd want governance to be? I want some, uh, well, first of all, let me clarify the po uh, my personal position, which is, uh, which is in line with the position of Gollum, 
we're trying to stay apolitical as much as possible. That said, you know, we understand that there needs to be some pressure on decision making because otherwise things won't get done on a protocol level and that's when we get burned. But we, we try as much to stay away and just push for the unity of Ethereum. Uh, that's sort of my position because I'm obviously not very, you know, not very into governance as well, but... Uh, you know, what I would like to see is actually some kind of process and not this chaos. Uh, you know, chaos is not an order. Uh, people can argue that chaos is actually the highest order, but chaos is not an order. So, you know, just some kind of formalization. I'm not expecting like a full democratic thing. I hate plutocracies, so I'm not expecting that. Uh, I'm not expecting any format of coin vote, but... You know, there should be layers of decision making inside the community that we can actually, you know, look after. When you look at the way that like social media is like, do you think social media is making decisions right now? Well, it's making decisions and it's actually silencing a lot of people, you know, because um some people have a lot of weight. Their their opinions have a lot of weight. Let's say, you know, let's uh, let's say Vitalik. You know, everyone's waiting for what Vitalik said. But Vitalik wants to research, maybe. You know, so people should leave him alone. But no, they're they're just waiting for him to uh, you know to light the way, and that's a lot of weight for some uh, one person, and that causes uh, that as a byproduct causes them to go silent. Because, you know, they know the way that everything that they say uh, has. So I think that the social media is very much making decisions for us because it not only proposes and it not only sends uh, narratives and pushes narratives, but also silences people because they put so much pressure on them. So, yeah. It is like that, you know. I've I've also seen arguments of, uh, of course, of them wanting to decide who the release manager is, and you know, I don't have their uh, I don't have their expertise, so I'm not sure if they if they're the right people to to make such a decision. You know, just because they like people like a mean, it doesn't mean that they know why a mean would be an uh, exceptional leader, even though I think that a mean is an exceptional leader. Uh, so it's really vague, you know. Uh, Pressure makes decisions as well, and this is the case with social media. So recently you came up with the conduct code of conduct um, for the Ethereum community. I'd, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's not... Uh, well, obviously, the, the last issues in, in social media and everything, it kind of triggered it, but I, I actually was thinking of it for quite a long time because... Um, because of the infosec wars as well and i have been following most of the examples and i'm i'm thinking what happens when ethereum truly scales you know or uh, you know what why are some of the dev uh, dev meetings now wanting to go silent and only chatham house you know there's something going on there's a pattern here you know and i see that you know people are searching for protection in a way so be, so because there's no code of conduct then you know, we don't know how to react to this. And, you know, 
Starting a code of conduct is actually really normal in digital communities. Everyone has one. Um, you know, the Linux community has one. Uh, W3C has one. Actually, ours is partly in inspired on that one. But the, in the interesting thing uh, was to adapt it to decentralized communities. How do you adopt it? Should institutions adopt it? Uh, should... Um, individuals adopted so we thought actually of writing a code of conduct that teams can adopt them because when you're in a team you are mo you empathize more with your team members and at the same time you you can build resi inter internal resistance against like you know breaches of such code of conduct so that's that's the whole angle of the code of conduct i'm not sure how it's gonna go i'm sure i'm gonna get a lot of backlash you know i'm sure i'm you know, I'm sure people will be like just angry because I mentioned, you know, we won't tolerate sexism. So they're going to get triggered uh, by that or racism or, or, or anything. You know, they're going to get triggered because that triggers people. And they, but at the same time, we can't have this kind of, you know, the, uh, these kind of developers uh, wanting to go dark for such important matters as Ethereum 2.1x. Because uh, you can see the, the pressure that, that these guys are under, you know. Uh, I think there was a really uh, meaningful tweet by Peter Silagi, and he said that now he can understand why most OS developers are anonymous. I guess one question I have about that is when you create the code of conduct, and I, I think you just you just nailed it. You said like, but how do you do that in a decentralized space? Because there is no authority. There's an, even the Ethereum Foundation wouldn't necessarily take this on. So, do you have any ideas on how? Like, what is the authority, or what? Like, what if someone crosses or ch or challenges or breaks the code of conduct? What could happen? Well, one of the key things that we we have been talking about actually is professionalizing. So uh, let's say that this code of conduct is adopted by several teams, you know, maybe uh, de the DevOps team uh, within the EF, and then maybe, I don't know, the Rust team in Golem decides to adopt it as well, and, the, you know, internal management of the ECF decides to adopt it, but maybe not the whole ECF, and that's fine. You know, and then we decided, okay, what do we do? Then obviously you need to actually build prevention protocols and victim uh, like sort of comforting protocols as well and action items if it gets like really, really bad too, you know, uh, and that needs to be professionalized. So we are expecting to actually do some kind of, you know, either consulting with experts that obviously don't charge money because we don't have it, or, you know, asking people for a certain, uh, asking uh, companies for a certain funds to get these professionals to actually weigh in to such limit situations and apply them to a decentralized context. I think the team approach is nice because that builds, like, when each team adopts it, and you know that each team adopts it, it creates a network. So you all already have the network of, pr of protection that uh, you need to have for cases of like really, really grave uh, breaches. But then you need to have an, a an action plan. And I'm not qualified to do that. You know, by all means, my, my background is as a marketer and communicator. I, I have experience on these issues, but it's personal experience, you know, from being Argentinian. Uh, but... Um, yeah, definitely. You know, we need psychologists, uh, legal people, everyone from the corporate world, actually. You know, because that's where most of the abuses uh, are more, more um, like outspoken. So, yeah.
Do you see this code of conduct as fitting into that sort of governance activity, though? Do you see by creating something like this, are you, I guess the hope is to allow for more voices to participate? Yeah, I, you know, it's really, well, I wouldn't try to mix it up with governance because that's when the code of conduct actually becomes very much political and we want to stay neutral. But uh, I see the code of conduct as being enforced into the governance discussions to bring a little bit more protection to the people and obviously to uh, to be able to identify some situations that are actually not governance discussions but are you know breaches of integrity m mostly. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Um, Sure. So uh, the code of conduct has its on its B1 and we need feedback from everyone because that's how you build a decentralized code of conduct. This was basically done by um, people were, uh, on a working group on magicians and then was revised by Jamie Pitts and I. Uh, so yeah, we need all the voices. If you want to check it out, it's on ethereum-magicians.org uh, and uh, yeah, you can simply search for it and please give us feedback. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. So next up, we have Hudson. Hi, Hudson. Hello. You've already been on the podcast, and we've even talked about governance in that episode. Um, but maybe we should still start with a quick intro. Yes. Um, I sure have been on previous episodes. I've loved it every time. Thanks for having me back. And I am Hudson Jameson. I do uh, the core developer calls for the Ethereum community. I also do DevOps at the Ethereum Foundation and general community work. So we've also done, we've done an episode also on like ERCs and EIPs, and your work is right in the middle of all of that. Correct. Do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe like what's up in that department? What's new? in the EIP, ERC, core dev call. What are you thinking about these days? So since we last talked, the Ethereum cat herders have formed as a kind of an organization that uh, is going to go around and do a lot of the project management and project organization work in the ecosystem and fill some gaps where they need to be filled uh, as far as um, some yeah management work goes. And uh, part of that is going to be overhauling the EIP process eventually. Um, and part of that's also going to be doing better note-taking and core dev calls and uh, just a litany of other things. Are you involved in this? Yeah, I started it with Offrey and Lane and Piper and a few other people. So what I've been asking a lot of people about today um, at ECC, where we are, there's a little bit of noise in the background, that's okay. Um, what I've been asking is something about decision making and how, how that works. Tell me a little bit about how you see decision making right now and what you, like even with cat herders there, like what is missing? What do you think still needs some work? So I'm always an advocate for better signaling systems, so that's still missing today. As far as how decisions are made today, I've kind of started to morph more into the field that this is a technocracy right now, as we have it, where major decisions like uh, hard fork updates and a lot of the stuff that changes the core of Ethereum in a major way is decided by the developers at the end of the day. And so that is the definition of technocracy, an elite group of technical people that make decisions. Do you think that that comes into conflict a little bit with like the ecosystem's desire for transparency? 
Absolutely. And I think that even though the, you know, people who are in charge tend to try to listen to the community and, you know, give their best effort to be neutral or when they can, I think that there still needs to be more transparency around decision making to make it as yeah, transparent as possible to make it as fair as possible. But that's a really hard thing to do because even though people have been trying to figure out governance stuff for hundreds of years, we still haven't perfected it in a way that we can, you know, enable it for this kind of decentralized distributed ecosystem we have. Earlier, I was talking with Maria Paula about this idea of people sort of voices being silenced because some people are afraid to share their opinions. It's almost like the trans you, you, we want transparency. We want kind of autonomy. We want personal responsibility from those making decisions, but then it can also be kind of dangerous. What do you think about that? I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot of power you get when you have an anonymous identity or a pseudo-anonymous identity on somewhere like Reddit or Twitter and you're chiming into the conversation. Usually those voices are the loudest and considered trolls because there's not an identity associated with them. But then when you have an identity associated with yourself, then all this talk of conflict of interest comes up and this talk of, you know, what are their motives? What are their desires? How can we attack them come up? And it gets really, really stressful for the people who are trying to speak up about their beliefs especially ones that are unpopular. So there's been a code of conduct created. What do you think about it? I think it's a great initiative because it's uh, one of those that the teams and organizations and communities and groups can opt into uh, and kind of craft and form over time. Um, you know, we can keep up with it on something like GitHub where you can see the changes that are made over time and the comments from community members about it. So I think it's a really good process. I think it would be crazy to think that we shouldn't allow someone to come up with a code of conduct because I don't see anything but goodness coming from it as long as people keep in mind that it is opt-in. Back to decision-making, there's a decision that needs to be made soon, that of who the release manager will be. Um, I'm really curious to hear what you think of the, like, let's use that as an example of decision-making right now because it's a little bit neutral, not completely neutral, but it's a little bit neutral, so... How is that going? How right now is the decision-making going around that? Who gets to decide? So the Ethereum cat herders um, have kind of taken up the role in forming these uh, release manager, I guess, positions. And uh, previously, we had Offrey doing it. uh, But now that he can no longer do the release manager role, what we're doing is we're having a group of people form that new role. And that's going to be a really interesting experiment, I believe. Uh, It's something where, you know, a lot of things in Ethereum are decentralized and distributed, so why not release management? Another uh, pro of this is that there is not going to be a target put on one individual's back if the release manager process is attacked or a decision is made that is, um, you know, not very well received by the community. So right now we have uh, people stepping up to the plate like Joseph DeLong and Dean Eigenman who are going to be helping as release managers. If anyone's seen Dean's campaign on Twitter about uh, him wanting to be a release manager, he's put up a good work so far. So, yeah, you should check that out. That actually leads me to my last question, which is like, do you... Do you think that decision-making is still kind of happening on Twitter? Or do you think it's moving off Twitter? I think that decision-making is definitely influenced by Twitter because we see many of the decision-makers active on Twitter and discussing things. We still see Vitalik very active on there. We still see a lot of the core developers and other thought leaders in the space, you know, sharing their thoughts on Twitter. So you know they're reading Twitter. And if they're reading Twitter, they're being influenced by Twitter. So obviously it has an impact. 
Do you have any last thoughts you want to share? I think that things are getting more tough uh, as far as making decisions in Ethereum as we grow, but we are finding interesting ideas uh, in order to kind of scale with uh, the community growing. And I think that uh, over time, things are going to become more and more clear who the decision makers are or what the decision makers are and uh, how, how this all works. Cool. Well, thanks for having this interview. Thank you so much. And thanks for bearing with me as all of this construction is happening next to us. <laughs> this is the first time you're on this podcast, I think, eh? Yep, this first time. Cool. Well, maybe we should start with an intro. Who are you and what are you working on? Uh, hey, my name is Sunny. Uh, I work on a mostly on cosmos uh but then i also have another podcast called epicenter so uh we'd love to do some collaboration sometime hey i think i heard of you guys <laughs> all right so today we want to talk about decision making and kind of how that works you're coming from cosmos but i guess you guys have been thinking a lot about this let's start with sort of the decision making and transparency question how transparent does decision making need to be in a decentralized space um, honestly, I'll admit that I haven't thought too much about this transparency question as much because uh, Cosmos isn't launched yet. And so I feel like the trans- we haven't been like, you know, bombarded with like invasions of our privacy and stuff. So I feel we haven't felt that yet. But, you know, in general, I tend to err on the side of like, I'm pretty pro transparency. And I think that like, you know, people should be very clear on like, you know, especially governance decisions, like decision making, like, you know, it should be recorded well. Um, I know Jay is a huge fan of like making sure like a lot of things like, you know, we should be building governance forums where like messages are signed and stuff. So, you know, if you're having a governance forum where like validators, for example, are giving their opinions on stuff, right? You should be making sure that those opinions, for one, are actually true and coming from the validator and like, you know, maybe being signed and maybe even being on chain and stuff. Are you a fan are you a fan of on-chain governance? Um, in a limited capacity, um, I think that I think we definitely need a method of on-chain signaling. That's what I like to call it instead of governance. And I think one of the like you know I'm not a huge fan of the Tezos model, which is like or Polkadot model, where you know government said to do something and like the the code auto updates under people's feet and just changes. On the other hand, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin and Ethereum's model where where there's no method for coin holders to signal their desires. In Ethereum, they have this, uh, you know, carbon votes and stuff. But the problem is it's not official enough. And there's because of that, I think that heavily decreases voter turnout and just legitimacy of it. I think we I want on-chain voting, but it's not the, it doesn't execute changes. It's part of the... You know, there's many stakeholders, and one of them is coin holders. And so it's a way of getting their feedback, but without necessarily just like, it's it just part of the zeitgeist. And it's like, you know, we'll take, okay, now we have, we know what the coin holders generally want. Okay, now we'll, it's just part of what we'll go into. Oh, what do the validators want? What do the um, uh, node operators want? It's just part of the thing. And but we, there's not a good signaling mechanism for in, in, in Ethereum. Do you guys have something planned for Cosmos for signaling? Um, yeah, so we do have a method. We have do have an on-chain voting system, and in this we have two different. We have different types of proposals. There's some which are um, there's three main types. There's like what's called text proposals, p- 
parameter change and software upgrade. Software upgrade is less, is more of just a coordination mechanism. It's to say like, oh, are we all ready to update the software? But really, you're upgrading the software when you've agreed on a roadmap, which co comes with the text proposals. And so basically what it is, it's a, people can write proposals for new features or changes as text. And then, you know, they'll propose it to the community and will people can vote yes or no. And it doesn't, it doesn't trigger anything. It just gets people's opinions on something. And um, and then there's some things that are like parameter change proposals where some minor things that like maybe just for efficiency purposes, we do want to just let this vote actually trigger stuff. Like, you know, some, you know, and this happens in Ethereum already. There is on-chain governance. For example, the gas limit is controlled by on-chain governance by the miners. Um and so, you know, maybe some minor things that aren't as important we can leave that be automatically changed. But like, for example, changes to the monetary supply, like inflationary schedule, that should definitely not be like governance controlled or things like, you know, some things should. There's a lot of things that technically we could have implemented as parameter change proposals, but it might be better to leave them as requiring manual hard forks to upgrade. Who, when you do need to do sort of the meat-based decision making, who is it going to be? Who is the council or what have you that makes this call? Um, essentially, what will happen is I think um, you know people will. It, I, I actually really like the Bitcoin-like mindset or of like you know just emergent consensus you know the cosmos hub is meant to be this pretty conservative blockchain it's meant to be hyper secure and not changing too rapidly um and so we don't want it to we want it to actually be kind of slow and so other chains other blockchains in the cosmos ecosystem you know maybe they have different governance styles so i'm speaking more on how i see the cosmos hubs specifically um and so I, I want changes to be slow and I want, you know, changes should only happen once the zeitgeist realizes that it's ready. And, um, and you know, and that's what, and finally that software upgrade mechanism, that's kind of just like really what we're asking people to vote on is not whether they want something to happen, but whether they think, believe the zeitgeist has approved it. And that's kind of what like, you know, BIP signaling in Ethereum, in, in, in Bitcoin is like, where it's like, you know, when 95% when when of the miners realize that, okay, this is happening. Like 95% of miners didn't want SegWit. It was 95% of miners said, okay, the zeitgeist has told us SegWit is happening. Let, let's activate it now. And so that's what the software upgrades are really supposed to be. And, you know, it should take months to years to implement features and changes. That's like serious rough consensus right there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's what the Cosmos Hub is really meant to do. And like I said, other zones should, you know, maybe things that are dApps and stuff, they should maybe have their own governance mechanism that like iterates rapidly. Um, I guess kind of like, you know, I'll go into a side point about how Cosmos views governance. Um, I think one of the big pro one of the main things about Cosmos and, you know, why I don't like this, like, why I'm generally not a huge fan of, sh like, sh uh, the Ethereum model of governance is I think there's just too many competing interests. You, I, I, This is why co the Cosmos premise is every application on its own chain with its own staking token and its own governance model. Because otherwise, you know, I like to call Ethereum an empire. This is like this like narrative I've been pushing for a while. Um, and part of the things that an empire does is it, um, you know, 
it's hard to rule and manage. It's just like, I don't think it's possible. I, I think Bitcoin's governance is much, you know, clearly they have problems, like, but I think it's much more decentralized because it's more specialized. It's like, you know, with Ethereum, it's just too big, too many competing interests. You look at like the EIP repo, there's thousands of EIPs, most of which, uh, not most, but a lot of which are contradictory. Like there's competing interests that just can't co-work together. And so it's how do you govern something with so many competing interests? And you end up using a you know pretty centralized, or at least it practically centralized, if not like technically designed to be centralized but you know the theorem foundation has too much control and i think there's some thing issues especially you know that about trademarks and whatnot but like it's too hard to manage but in cosmos if every chain has its own governance mechanism it can modify the state machine to optimize and specialize for its own applications rather than listening to the having to do what the empire tells you to do so you're saying ethereum's an empire is cosmos a United Cosmos. Okay. This might go into a pitch of Cosmos, but here's the story of Cosmos. Early on, you know, generation one of human civilization was like, we, you know, kingdoms and like, you know, this is what early stuff was like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Namecoin. These things didn't work together. There were kingdoms could only trade with their like direct neighbors. It wasn't great. Economic connectivity, like, brings upon like economic growth and so what humanity has been doing for the past thousands of years is we created empires in order to allow mass we we thought that we needed mass political integration to do economic integration it's the empires that allowed someone in italy to trade with persia and it did this through like you know enforcing standards and you know honestly when they don't want to trade with you you march your army upon them and force them to trade with you and, you know, empires, they brought a lot of economic growth to the world, but they also came with a lot of, like, you know, cons, right? And, you know, you just have to open a history book to, like, learn about some of the atrocities that are created when you have such massive centralization, mostly often because of these competing interests and just impossible to govern. The greatest innovation of humanity in the last hundred years is we realized, we learned how to do economic integration without political integration. It, it, since the beginning of the 20th century, we've seen the breakdown of empires and the rise of nation states and city states. And we did this using primarily four technologies or four. These four technologies are especially important in the last hundred years. Number one is free trade zones where free trade has become the norm. So we have things like NAFTA, EU, like we've accepted that free trade is the norm rather than the exception. And we've created like bilateral agreements to make this a reality. The second technology that we did to do this was institutions. So, for example, the UN, it's not a government. It has no enforce, enforcement power. But what it is, is it's a common forum for people to come together and discuss and like, hopefully like, resolve conflict before they escalate. And that was very valuable. Third is containerization, where we standardize shipping containers and kind of turn, you know, now containerization has enabled global trade. Any any port in the world can ship to any other port in the world because they all use the same container format. And finally, the internet. I probably don't have to give any explanation, but we can all see why the internet was important for economic integration. And I hope blockchain can play a role in this story, but of economic, of human economic integration without political. Um, but yeah, so now that's what I see 
the vision of Cosmos is, can we enable this sort of economic integration without the political integration? Can each blockchain have sovereignty but still be able to be part of this larger blockchain ecosystem? Interesting. I never thought about Cosmos that way. That's really cool. Um, do you do you have anything else you want to share? Because I think we actually don't have any more time. But do you have anything else you want to share? Um, no. I mean, I'm just really excited about this like economic integration idea, and I just and I, I think it's really interesting to see how different models of like other paradigms fit into this so you know someone I, I was explaining this like exact narrative to someone else like yesterday and they asked me where does Polkadot fit into this and I, I had I think about like, mm, and I don't know I think Polkadot's the EU in this situation it's like somewhat more politically integrated but still somewhat sovereign and I think it'd be really interesting to take a lot of these like blockchain ideas that we are coming up with and see how we map them onto this like framework that I'm providing sounds like looking or it's mapping them onto history too I, I, growing up, history was always my favorite. I, I was a huge social studies person, history, like geography, and so uh, I was the ge- I was the geography nerd in high school. So I'm a history nerd. Cool. All right. Well, nice talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. For sure. Who are you, and what are you working on? My name is Yalda, and I'm part of Autark, and we are part of the Aragon Network, building different applications for decentralized autonomous organizations to make it easier for teams uh, to collaborate. I think at the very basic form, as far as uh, an organization of people collaborating or funding projects go, it's like an organization that operates based on smart contracts that run on a blockchain. Um, you know, it's different. Some people consider like Ethereum the network a DAO too, but my focus is mainly m- more on um, like DAOs of like people working together, whether it's like, you know, users and potentially people that are like funding projects. So I think that, yeah, a DAO can be many different flavors, but uh, yeah, so it doesn't have to be fully autonomous. Like the code's just like running by itself and it's like you're, you can barely, like uh, humans barely touch it. Some people think of that when they think of DAOs. It's like very detached from humans. Um, but I think of it kind of like, like a corporation. Like a corporation can be a cooperative. It can be an LLC, a C-Corp. You know, the DAOs are sim- similarly where it can have different governance models. So, And I guess a lot of this, a, a lot of the kind of thinking around this comes from the need to make decisions in groups. When you, I imagine you've been observing what goes on in Ethereum and decision-making around sort of upgrades or what happens after core dev calls, magicians, all of these different groups. What's your take on the decision-making? Like, what do you think this, where are we at in terms of decision-making in Ethereum? Where, like, where, what do you think about it? I think it's a lot of people always uh, try to make references that, okay, it's operating uh, in a way that's normal for how protocols are developed. Like, this is like how the IETF works. It's like rough consensus. Um, But I I think it could be more advanced as far as how how should we make decisions or how should we gather sentiment as a community that's building like blockchain technology that is also you know developing like smart contract technology which is which is it's like the whole spirit of it is this this is supposed to be technology that makes it easier for us to collaborate or make decisions so i think we do need to kind of like probably use the technology to enhance how decisions are made 
do you think it would need like do you think the structures and tools that are built around DAOs now could those be used in some in something like the Ethereum decision making are they being used already there I think starting to use them for signaling makes more sense because it's it's not on-chain governance in the sense of you do this vote and this is we're going to go through with this upgrade i think it's too risky to do something like that to begin with but the tools definitely are ready to start to gather signals at least um like one idea can be for example like how do we uh how do we gauge the sentiment of like the top on 100 teams that have ERC20 tokens. They're like DAP development teams. You could do something like, okay, each team gets one token, and then you kind of have this Sybil-resistant type way of seeing, okay, what, what do the 100 teams think about funds recovery, you know? Because, like, right now there's no way to really even, like, pull each DAP team and just, like, have that signal. So I think that's where we can start to use the technology more, where it's not, like, oh, on-chain governance, like, it's uh, you vote and it upgrades the code, or we have to, like, go with it as a source of truth, but we can at least try to be better about understanding what different people or teams in the community want, not just the core devs, not just, like, trying to de- decipher what's being said on Reddit, do you have any examples of projects that you've seen recently? Maybe not even recently. Maybe they're older projects where they've done a really good job of creating some sort of governance structure that works. As far as like a blockchain-based organization? I mean... It's like I'm part of the Aragon network. They have their own particular governance of how projects are being funded now i'm not going to say like oh yeah this totally works well like i think there are some flaws with it because of like the the voter turnout um but no i mean i i guess i haven't really been fully following like like what governance framework works really well right now like i know some people talk about the like decred blockchain like they they also have like a voting system and like a this ticketing system for how it works but um as far as like people using DAOs or DAO uh, systems today to operate it's still like very early like no no one has fully adopted it yet it also may be a question that will never be answered with like an a resounding like yay think about it like who thinks about how much they love their government no matter how well functioning it is i feel like no one's gonna sit there and be like you know i really really like my government i mean maybe maybe that does exist i in my lifetime have never met anyone who said that i don't think although i have heard people say things about their corporate kind of governments or their the way their companies run. You have heard stories, I mean, I think I've met people who would say, I love the way my company runs itself. Do you think that some of the DAO stuff is borrowing a little bit from like a corporate style management or governance? In general, yeah, it is. uh, I mean, the first use case is evolving corporate governance um, because 
it's so it's definitely going to borrow a lot from that because you can have a DAO as far as an organization that operates on a blockchain that has like you know you elect a board of directors and you can give those directors some power to or privileges to make specific types of decisions that everyone else can't so I think with DAOs yeah you can emulate the the traditional corporate world a lot and what people are saying right now is like we might actually see that that might be more common than completely inventing new governance models it's like first let's just solve traditional corporate governance on the blockchain um then we can start to tweak it around to see if we can find something that's better than how like the traditional systems work do you have any last thoughts that you want to share last thoughts yeah i just hope that Um, you know, through the developments over the past few years, the community does start to, you know, evolve and improve and and figure out ways for people that aren't core developers to be more involved in the process. I think that if if the community did open uh, open up new avenues, we can at least figure out the answers to these questions um, as we approach them as a broader community too. Cool. Well, thanks so much for this interview. Yeah, thank you for having me. Who are you and what are you working on? Hey, my name is Peter Morick. I'm head of public affairs at Parity Technologies where I manage uh, media, communications, uh, policy, and governance. So in this context, we're going to be talking about Ethereum's governance, which is one of my favorite topics. (laughs) All right. Um, would you say, let's start in, it's come up a few times in other conversations that I've had today. Let's start with off-chain versus on-chain, because obviously the Polkadot project is often very much associated with on-chain governance. What's your take on it? So I think that whether the the thrust of your project is in an on-chain or off-chain direction, there's still going to be aspects of both that take uh, take some relevance in decision making so uh, within po- Polkadot's context uh, a lot of the sort of finality and decision making and signaling happen on chain uh, and then the stakeholders who are involved are more or less bound to those decisions but that doesn't mean that off chain governance and politicking and conversations around upgrades aren't going to happen. Uh, within Ethereum's context the, uh, the majority of uh, the conversation is all around uh, processes like the EIP process, which are inherently off-chain, but I think that the conversation uh, around what's good for the protocol could be greatly enhanced by strong on-chain signaling, stuff like coin votes, hash power voting, gas voting. These are all things that we have at our disposal that we can use to measure sentiment on controversial issues uh, as they come up, which they're bound to bound to come. So... I had Boris on earlier, and he's obviously really involved with magicians, also MP was on. You have been pretty involved with magicians as well. Do you think that magicians is working? So I actually raised this within the Meta Magicians ring uh, uh, during the Paris uh, Council two days ago. Uh, The question is, what does this group want its role to be? It was originally uh, formed in order to create a body of like-minded people focused on helping Ethereum grow who are going to act as a technical review body for 
technical upgrades to the protocol and in that capacity provide recommendations to the core devs and take some of that load of actually reviewing what is uh, technically possible or not off the core devs so that the core devs when they actually talk about an issue can can focus on what their job is which is uh, asking whether or not it could actually be implemented um, I f- think that the that that scope has has shifted a bit uh, a lot of people who maybe felt a bit disenfranchised by the fact that so much power is held within the core devs and it's while it's an open group um, there are barriers to entry um, people who felt like they didn't have a say in that group were migrated towards magicians and has brought a lot of great uh, insight and and initiatives to the to the to the group but it has strayed from like that original vision of a, of a technical sort of council to help these tough decisions get made. Do you, do you see the magicians as something like formal or I guess it's pretty informal still? Yeah, it's pretty informal. Um, and part of my realization over the past few days uh, is that it does still have value in Ethereum governance broadly. Um, and this goes back to figuring out what it actually is. So over the last two uh, previous magicians councils in Berlin uh, and then in Prague uh, from the outside looking in if you didn't really know what was going on you might just say like oh like there's some forum posts or people got together and talked about these issues but in reality in Berlin uh, within the fund recovery ring we just fi- figured out that or, or, or discussed quite broadly the need for signaling uh, in order to sort of clean up the noise that we get from places like Reddit and Twitter where uh, random Twitter polls and, and Reddit upvotes are, are counted as, as signals on sentiment when in reality those are highly gameable Web2 sort of metrics to, to follow and we really do need some technological tools built to actually understand where people stand. So there was a team that was launched um, or, or sort of came together in Berlin following a presentation on the potential of uh, gas power voting and hash power voting because of this really cool project that Slocket had been working on. Um, so that team sort of spun off on its own and got a grant from Aragon and actually built a proof of concept signaling site uh, called Tenograph. So that was like very useful to governance, but it didn't actually fully mature within the context of Ethereum magicians. The same sort of thing happened again in uh, Prague this year for DevCon. Um, the magicians uh, uh, meetings were alongside the status hackathon, so it was a little bit hectic and, and, and uh, maybe a little bit too closely tied to a, a whole other event that was going on, which did seem to distract a bit, but at the same time, the cat herders were birthed at that uh, at, at that uh, events so like they have a very clear and useful role within ethereum project management and then when the fork coordination happens and making sure that like upgrades happen in a uh, efficient manner like that's a useful governance uh, uh, function so I think there is um, some use in magicians acting as like a conjuring ground for these sorts of projects that support governance going forward whether or not they're actually housed forever within the confines of the magicians. That's kind of perfect that they conjure up these other bodies. Do you feel like these are just like the beginnings of like institutions, maybe? I know that is a dirty word in this space, but... Institutions aren't all bad. Um, and I think that part of the hope of this space is has always been that we want to learn and innovate and grow, but we can also take 
things from past uh, uh, institutions or environments that we've been in and learn from, like we sort of have a decent idea on what works and what really doesn't. So one of my um, big insights, so to speak, I don't know if it's that deep, but I, I come from a more conventional political world and I am a huge proponent of keeping money and uh, electioneering in the way that it exists in modern nation-state politics out of blockchain governance. There's a way that we can fund organizations or non-organizations, I should say, like magicians and the cat herders without relying on sponsorships and plastering logos all over what's meant to be a uh, uh, thoughtful governance forum. I don't think we can do that while we're also being shilled product. Wow, that's actually, that leads us back to... um point that was much earlier when I was talking to Boris, which was about the compensation for some of these organizations, because right now it is sort of, it's a lot of altruism, I guess, and a lot of donations, space donated, food. Um, do you, what, what's the solution, how do you keep money out? What's the way you do that? Uh, it's tough, because money is pervasive and we happen to be building technology that digitizes it. Um, So there's more of just this whole uh, scenario, the potential for that scenario to happen because uh, it's, it's just, there's the the possibilities for, uh, for abusing it are greatly expanded, but at the same time, crypto economics gives us maybe some really cool tools we can use to actually reverse that trend and sustain it. Maybe we all form a DAO that supports uh, Ethereum governance going forward and just make regular anonymous uh, contributions to that in a way that uh, is, is, is beneficial to the community as a whole. What do you think the most frustrating thing is right now about decision making? What do you think is still missing? Unless it's a very basic technical change to the protocol that the core devs generally all agree with, it's impossible to do anything. So you feel like it's still very much stuck? Like there's something... Do you think it's broken or do you think it's just like moving very slowly? Um, I'm of the opinion that Ethereum's greatest risk factor at this point is... It, whether or not it figures out how to make tough decisions. Uh, I want Ethereum to succeed. I always have and always will. But the inability to, to come together on tough decisions where not everyone agrees is very, very uh, difficult to, to imagine. Um, I can't remember who said it. I think it might have been Vlad in a previous interview discussing how theoretically one person could break rough consensus. Um, that's in a room of 100 people, one person could break consensus that 99 other people have. Um, And I don't think that's healthy for the ecosystem. Do you think that timelines, deadlines, sort of time restriction helps push these decisions through? Like hard fork coming up or something like that? Yeah, it seems seems to be that way. I mean, a lot of people uh, I talk to about the big juicy issues tell me, Right, the Dow fork would have never happened if there wasn't a hard deadline. Um, I think that creating more structure within decision-making processes and and establishing some deadlines, at very least, for um, when decisions have to be made, is helpful. But 
obviously there's also a need to incentivize that and again we're lucky to have a lot of the tools available uh, within the protocols to incentivize decision making and, and make sure that it happens at a, uh, a pace that doesn't stifle innovation uh, one of the really great things I think that Afri Blessum uh, helped helped to uh, accomplish recently was the fact that Ethereum looking like it's going to have regularly scheduled forks every nine months with smaller upgrades on a more regular basis. So, I mean, that alone gives us more opportunity to understand and coordinate around dates on a calendar where proposals need to be in and people need to be reviewing EIPs and deciding whether or not they're going to be merged. So that alone um, is, is an important step. But the I am worried that the the pace at which Ethereum adopts these seemingly simple governance process updates is uh, a little bit slow. What are your last thoughts? What do you want to share? Uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I, I do have great faith in the ability to govern a body or a, a network like this in, in an off-chain fashion. I come from a world where uh, blockchains aren't a thing and we govern ourselves. Believe it or not, other than the issues that everyone points to and everyone really gets divided over in our nation-state cultures generally manage to keep society uh, uh, running uh, on, on, on time. Everyone has disputes, everyone has issues, but um, one of my favorite quotes is by Reinhold Niebuhr, and it goes, uh, democracy is about finding approximate solutions to insoluble problems. Uh, and I think that's exactly the solution we find ourselves in today. Not everyone is going to be happy with every decision that's ever made, but decisions do need to be made if we're going to push this thing forward like we all got into it to do. Cool. Thanks so much for this interview. Thank you. So this wraps up our conversations at ETHCC. If you like what we do and are interested in supporting this podcast, then please do follow us on Twitter, donate on Gitcoin, or check us out on Patreon. All of these links are in the show notes. I want to say thanks again to the participants in this episode and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.